Hear the word of the Lord, Matthew 7. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. This is the word of the Lord. Y'all may have a seat. Let's, um, let's go before the Lord together in prayer. Lord, we are thankful this morning um, that you, like Tim prayed earlier, that you meet us where we are. And if we come into this place this morning really exhausted from a busy holiday season, um, we can be thankful that you are good and you want to meet us there. If we come this morning really overwhelmed or sad uh, with all the things that go along with the holiday, with family or maybe memories, Lord, we praise you and we thank you and our hearts are grateful that you meet us there. Um, If we come into this place this morning filled with a lot of gladness and really filled up and feeling refreshed, you want to meet us there as well. Um, So God, thank you for that and we pray that you would meet us, that you would speak to us this morning. May these words from Jesus challenge us and also comfort us, encourage us and also transform us. So Holy Spirit, would you work in that way this morning? We invite you and we long for you to speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this week we are looking at one of our culture's most uh, most beloved verses in the Bible. Have you all ever heard, don't judge me? Right? Uh, that phrase and that idea which comes from Jesus has shaped our modern Western 21st century culture in really significant ways. And you may not be surprised to hear me say that um, I don't think our culture's exegesis of what Jesus is saying here is spot on. And so this morning, we're going to peel back the layers. There's a lot going on here. Some of it's really strange. We can acknowledge that. Don't throw your pearls before pigs. Don't give to dogs what is sacred, lest they turn around and trample you underfoot. What in the world? There's a lot going on here. We can acknowledge that and uh, see what Jesus has to say to us. It's really important, I believe, for you as an individual and as a follower, as a disciple of Jesus, as you seek to live as salt and light in the world, inspiring the imaginations of others. But I'm very excited about this passage this morning as well because I believe that it's really important for our church, for Christ City Church. Uh, because this vision, you've, you've heard us talking about this, this vision for our church to be a place where people can belong and a place where people can know God. And as I've looked at this passage, I don't think this is just really bold kind of preacher talk, uh, but I've, I've come to believe that this 
passage may be one of the, like, linchpins all throughout Scripture uh, for us really living into that vision that if we want to truly be a place where people can belong and where people can know God, we have to understand, and then we have to have the courage to live out what Jesus is telling us here in Matthew chapter 7. So I'm excited to dig in. Uh, We've just finished up with Matthew chapter 6, which is one of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus teaches his followers what it looks like to live with a non-anxious presence. That just sounds refreshing, like even just to hear that, non-anxious presence in the world. Isn't that something that our world would find inspiring and refreshing? Uh, If you can live in a very anxious, chaotic world with a non-anxious presence, knowing that you have a father, just like we sang earlier, who loves you with a strong love and who sees you and who clothes the lilies of the fields and who feeds the birds in the air, and how much more so will he care for you? He knows your needs. And when this takes root in your heart, you can live with this non-anxious presence in the world, loving and trusting and walking in deep communal relationship with your heavenly Father. So chapter six is about your interior, the spirituality of Jesus, we called it a couple of weeks ago. Chapter seven, the focus turns from your interior to your relationships with others and how this interior manifests itself in your relationships with others. And here's what Jesus is doing here. I'll give you the 30,000-foot view right off the bat. Um, Here in Matthew 7, verses 1 through 6, Jesus is calling out two different destructive ways that we tend to live in relationships with other people. Uh, Destructive ways that we tend to live in relationships with other people trying to exalt ourselves and diminish or lower someone else, seeking to raise or elevate ourselves at the expense of someone else bringing them down. And obviously, if we live that way, that inspires the imaginations of no one. No one wants anything to do with that. Judgmental Christians, we don't want anything to do with that, right? And it will not, will not lead to Christ City Church being a place where people can belong and where people can know God. So let's peel back the layers, zoom in, and see what Jesus has to say about these couple ways that we live in relationships with others. The first is in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. Look at verse 1. We're literally just going to go through these six verses, verse by verse. So, um, Verses will be on the screen behind me. If you have your Bible, you can keep it open. Uh, That's always helpful for me, at least. Uh, Verse one, judge not that you not be judged. Judge not that you not be judged. So the first thing we need to do here, if we're gonna understand what Jesus has to say to us, is we have to understand what he means when he uses this word, judge. The Greek word is krino, krino, judge. Um, There are a few different things that we can mean as English speakers when we use this English word judge. The first, obviously, is what a judge does in a courtroom. And there are actually some uh, students of the Bible, Leo Tolstoy, the the famous um, Russian writer is one of them, who thinks that that's what Jesus is talking about here, like what judges do in courtrooms. Judge not, lest you not be judged. So Leo Tolstoy and others think that Jesus is outlawing here any sort of court or 
um, I judge in a court, but Jesus can't, he can't mean that. Like there, I won't reference them, but there are tons of other places in scripture where government and courts are mentioned in a neutral way. Jesus can't mean that. Another way that we use the word judge is um, to refer to all the different decisions you make throughout your day. Like you judge whether or not it's a wise decision to take that new job. You judge whether it's the right temperature outside to wear shorts and a short sleeve shirt. You make all sorts of judgment calls a million times throughout your day. And obviously Jesus can't be telling us not to do that. So what's Jesus talking about? Most of the time in the New Testament, in the Greek New Testament, when this Greek word krino is used, it's referring to moral judgment. It's referring to making yourself the moral superior of another person and then not only judging them, but another way it's translated quite often in the New Testament is this word condemn. Condemning others. Elevating yourself, raising yourself up, placing yourself as the morally righteous one, the morally superior one so that you can look down on and judge and condemn others that you're in relationship with. Ultimately, it's about putting yourself in the position of God. You're the one who's morally righteous and has it all figured out so you can look down your nose and condemn others around you. And that's what Jesus is saying that we should not do in relationships with other people. But as we're going to see this morning, when we do that, and you do do this all the time, I hope you see as we continue looking at this passage, when you do this, it's most often less about the other person and more about you. Less about the other person and more about you. More about you feeling uncomfortable with who you are, so you have to make yourself bigger than you really are. And the way that you go about doing that is by making someone else smaller than they really are. We see this in verse 3. Skip to verse 3. We'll come back to verse 2. Don't worry. In verse 3, why do you see the speck that is in your own eye or the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log. Some translations say plank. But do not notice the log that is in your own eye. So Jesus uses this really extreme, right? Really grotesque and brutal. Like you all picture this in your head. I Google imaged it, which was a bad idea. I thought about showing some of the pictures, but it wouldn't be helpful for us. Uh, this is a brutal image that Jesus, that Jesus brings up, this hyperbole that he used. Obviously, he's speaking metaphorically. He's using a hyperbole. And this is actually even, like, it's so outlandish and crazy that it's, it's comedic. Like, it's funny. Um, you can imagine that Jesus, remember, Jesus, remember the context. Jesus is actually teaching a multitude of people here. And I think as he were to say this picture, I think there would have been, like, audible laughter in the crowd, right? Um, why do you, when you have a log in your eye, notice the speck that is in your brother's eye? And here's what Jesus is doing here with this really extreme, really grotesque, but really simple, uh, to-the-point image. Is he's showing you that 
having a log in your eye would be uncomfortable, right? Painful, like intensely painful. I can imagine that's never happened to me. Anybody? No. Uh, but having a speck in your eye is mildly irritating, mildly uncomfortable. And what Jesus is saying here is you have this giant pain that you're unwilling to deal with. You're unwilling to go through the painful process of having this log removed. And so in order to ignore the pain and try to minimize the pain and try to get over the pain of having a log or a plank stuck in your eye, you focus on the speck that is in someone else's eye. Do you see that? It's more about you and less about the other person. Do you see that? I, um, before I worked for Christ City full-time, I worked for a home repair ministry here in Memphis where we hosted camps. And it's kind of crazy, but it works. We hosted camps and high school students and junior high students from all over the country came in and did major home repair on houses here in Memphis. Like I said, it's kind of crazy, but it works. Like junior high students re-roofing houses in the summer in Memphis. And they actually do a pretty good job most of the time. And so I was, I was on staff there. I was the camp director. And so one of the things that I had the privilege of doing uh, was helping deal with injuries. Uh, and I'm no, like, I'm not first aid certified or anything like that. It would mostly mean me going to the emergency room and sitting with someone who had recently injured themselves. And uh, it happened uh, very rarely, I'll say. Uh, you'd expect it to happen much more often when they're junior high students dealing with power tools on roofs in Memphis. Uh, but there were very rarely injuries, like God's grace is displayed in that place. Uh, but one time I was, I was called and I had to go pick someone up and take them to the emergency room because they were using a circular saw. <laughs> and the circular saw slipped and gashed their leg. And it was, it was disgusting. <laughs> Y'all, it was so gross. And uh, so we were at the emergency room and they actually got like, I don't know the ways hospitals and emergency rooms work. Some of y'all who work at hospitals can, can correct me afterwards, but like they got placed near the front, right? They, like we passed people because it was, it was, it was just a lot of blood and pretty gross. But how ridiculous, how ridiculous would it have been if I was there at the emergency room with this person who just like plowed a circular saw through their leg and instead they're like, you know what, you know what? don't worry about me. There's someone else back in my site who has a splinter and we really need to focus on them. Like how crazy is that? That's the image here that Jesus gives us. Like there's an emergency situation. Like you have a log, you have a plank in your eye, this painful deal, and you're so concerned with this speck that is in your brother's eye. And then it gets even crazier in verse four. Look at verse four. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye. So not only do you internalize and notice like, hey, there's a speck in my brother's eye and I'm gonna really focus on that. But you actually try to do something about it. Like you verbalize it. You post it on Facebook. You have to make it known. You have to approach your brother about it and you have a log sticking out of your own eye. What if... Um, what if you went to the optometrist? You went to the eye doctor, which I don't do 
often enough. Sorry, Laura Mosley. Uh, and anybody out there, a few optometry students here. Um, what if you went to the optometrist because you just had this nagging, mild, it's happening for months, this discomfort in your eye that you just can't seem to get rid of. And you have to wait. You know, you get led back to the room and you're like, yes, this is going way faster than I imagined. But then you have to wait longer and longer. When is the person going to come? And they finally come. And you're so excited. I'm going to get this discomfort removed from my eye. And they walk in and there's like this giant log sticking out of their eye. And they're like, you know what? Let's go to work on you. How crazy, how ludicrous is that? Like that would be utterly destructive, right? It would be so damaging for an optometrist who is blinded because of a log sticking out of her eye to go to work doing surgery on your issue. Do you see? So damaging, so dangerous, but listen to this. Because of the painful process of removing a log from your eye, we want to focus on specks in other people's eyes. In an act of self-preservation, we refuse to acknowledge and look at and deal with the log in our eye, and we do so by minimizing that and noticing and pointing out and calling out specks in other people's eyes. So how do you do this? Because you do it every day, and I do too. So you may, you may have had this happen this week when you're with your family on Thanksgiving. And maybe, if you're like me, you don't say anything because you lack the courage. <laughs> but like verse 3, you notice, and these things go on in your head, um, and you put yourself in the morally superior position, and you diminish or lower someone else into a lower position because they don't see things the exact ways that you see things. They don't have things quite as figured out. They don't have things quite as nuanced. They don't get it like you do. Do you see how arrogant that sounds? They don't get it, get the way that the world works quite as well as you do. So you're here and you look down on them here. It happened for me a couple of weeks ago, I was on a run, and um, I've run into, our offices used to be on Broad Avenue, and so there was this uh, one guy who is sort of homeless and sort of not homeless, kind of often on the streets. He rents a, um, he boards a room uh, at a weekly rate, which is, man, that is one area of injustice in our city. Like, he boards a room at a weekly rate that is more than most of y'all's mortgages are for a month. It's insane and out of control. Um, so some weeks he's, he's got a home, other weeks he doesn't. He'd come, in our often, he'd come in our office often, and so we got to know him a little bit. Um, we've since moved offices, and so I don't run into him as much. But his, his room that he boards is in my neighborhood. So I was on a run the other day and, and ran into him. And I noticed in conversing with him, that I was doing this, that I was condemning him, that I was placing myself up here as the one who has things figured out because it looks like I do on the outside and it looks like he doesn't on the outside. And I was looking down my nose, I was condemning. There's another way that we do this all the time when we shame others with our words, 
or even non-verbally with, um, with our body language. This happens all the time from parents to children. You all have stories of ways that your parents shamed you, stories that you need to go back and look at and uncover and deal with. This happens all the time in marital relationships where you say something that shames your spouse. And it's damaging. It's destructive. Look at this quote. It'll be on the screen from Brene Brown. We live in a world where most people still subscribe to the belief that shame is a good tool for keeping people in line. Do you see? Putting yourself here and lowering someone else to keep them in line. Not only is this wrong, but it's dangerous. Shame is highly correlated with addiction, violence, aggression, depression, eating disorders, and bullying. Those are ways that you condemn those closest to you every single day. And here's what's so tragic and sad about this is because when I condemn my homeless friend, it makes a relationship impossible. When I condemn in my shaming words my spouse or my kids, it makes relationship impossible because here's what it does. It puts you up here and it puts them down here instead of being right here together. Do you see that? That's why for followers of Jesus, Jesus has to call out this destructive way that we live in relationship with others. There's another way that we attempt to live in relationships with others that brings about destruction and damage. And he mentions it in verse six. So look at verse six, a crazy verse. (laughs) Do not give to dogs what is holy or sacred, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. What in the world? Can we just acknowledge that that is... That, what, what does that mean? Um, I read this week because I approached this and I'm like, I don't know what to do with this. Um, so I read and listened to at least five different um, really renowned Bible scholars and teachers commenting on this verse, Matthew 7, 6. And I came, with, I came away with at least five different interpretations and understandings of this verse. Like we have to acknowledge that sometimes Jesus says some crazy things, right? It's like, yeah, I was, I was tempted to like take my wife's pearls, rip them off and throw it to pigs. But thank you, Jesus, for clearing that up. Like, I won't do that now. What in the world? What does this mean? Um, so I came away this week with a bunch of different ways to think about this verse. And I'll, I have to make a couple of side notes here. Um, first side note is I know in conversation with people that that's a reason, that's a hurdle for many people, that's a reason why they can't buy into uh, Scripture, why they can't buy into what the Bible says. Because there are crazy things here. What do we do with them? And Christians throughout the ages and around the world see these things in different ways. So what in the world do we do with that? I can't believe that this thing has any sort of validity or truth. But my challenge to that, and I've mentioned this before, is isn't that the sort of, it sounds counterintuitive at first, but isn't that the sort of God that you want? Like one that you have to 
one that you get to, one that you're invited to wrestle with and figure things out. Like we don't approach scripture and upon first read, we're like, all right, we got it. Like, let's move on. Instead, you, could, you can and should spend the next 80, 90, however long years looking at this and exploring and reading and thinking and praying and feeling and wrestling, and you'll never begin to plumb the depths of Scripture. Like, to me, things in Scripture like this only confirm that it's, it's more valid. And why in the world would the original writers include things like this? It must, like, Jesus must have actually said this, right? Side note number two is, is this makes me really glad um, about the way that we go about uh, preaching and doing sermon series at Christ City. And I don't, I, I guess this is sort of like humble brag. Uh, but we preach through entire sections of scripture so we can't ignore really strange, obscure verses like this one, right? Like we place ourselves underneath the words of Jesus so we can let Jesus say what he wants to say to us instead of trying to make him say what we want him to say to us. Do you see that? So because we're just taking our time preaching through the Sermon on the Mount, we have to talk about verses like this one and wrestle with what does this mean for us? Um, so what does it mean for us? <laughs> the person that I've appreciated the most as I've read, uh, because he really deals with context, um, like one of the tools, one of the most important tools of studying your Bible and interpret, interpreting what you find in Scripture is looking at the context, like what's happening around it, what's happening uh, in the big picture, in the big story. Um, and so Dallas Willard, in his book, Divine Conspiracy, it's one of the books that's shaped this sermon series, and it's so good. It's really dense. Maybe that could be a goal for you in 2018, is spend the year reading the Divine Conspiracy by Dallas Willard. Um, I really appreciate the way that he thinks about verse 6 in Matthew chapter 7. And here's what Dallas Willard, uh, Dallas Willard shows. That in verses 1 through 5, Jesus exposes a destructive way that we go about relationship with others by condemning them. Condemning them. And then in verse 6, Jesus exposes a second way, a second destructive way that we go about relationship with others by correcting them. We live in relationship with others and we condemn them and that's destructive and damaging. And we live in relationships with others and we correct them and that's destructive and damaging. Let me, let me share with you what I mean when I say that. Do not give to dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs. First, you have to understand that Jesus here isn't describing certain, like he's not using these metaphors to describe certain groups of people. Dogs and pigs were considered unclean animals in the first century Jewish world. I'm sorry to you who, who love your dogs, but in the first century Jewish world, they, they were considered unclean animals. They were scavengers who lived on the streets. And as you can imagine, living on the streets in the first century world, like your diet would be pretty, pretty gross. And so they just ate garbage and vile stuff all day. They ate unclean things. They were themselves unclean. It was just this, this vicious, nasty loop. And so Jesus isn't saying that you're like a dog or you're like a pig or this type of people or this group of people is like dogs or pigs. He's not even talking about, listen to this. This is the most helpful thing. He's not even talking about the worthiness 
of dogs or pigs. Like dogs aren't worthy of your sacred things. Pigs aren't worthy of your pearls. Instead, listen to this, he's talking about the helpfulness of those things for a dog or for a pig. In other words, your pearls are sacred to you, even more so in the first century world. Like this is one of the most valuable things that we own. This is sacred to me. Or religiously, there are all these things that are sacred to us. And how unhelpful would it be if you offer those things to these unclean animals who know, have no idea what to do with them? They can't ingest them. It's not nourishing for them. It doesn't help them in life, right? They're unclean animals. It's not helpful at all for them. Do you see that? It's not about the worthiness of dogs or pigs. It's about how unhelpful it is to offer your, pig, your pearls to pigs or your sacred things to dogs. So here's what that means for us. There are situations when you, in an effort to elevate yourself or raise yourself, want to offer to someone else who isn't ready or who isn't able, who doesn't find it helpful, you want to offer to them your pearls of wisdom, right? Your sacred knowledge. And it's not helpful to them. They can't ingest it. It's not nourishing to them. In fact, it's maybe even only damaging. Let me share a story with you so you can, you can start to see this. Uh, a few weeks ago, I was with a friend, and I was sharing with him just how hard it is. This is another thing that we can acknowledge this morning, how hard it is uh, to have multiple small children at one time. It's like holidays were restful, but now it's just like a chaotic tornado. We get home late last night and wow, I, what just happened, right? Um, Laura and I have two kids. There are other small children in our family, a bunch of cousins. Uh, and so I was just sharing with my friend like how hard this is. Like our two-year-old is, is two and has started throwing temper tantrums and our uh, infant doesn't sleep well. And so I was just sharing, like, man, it, it's just really challenging to have two small children who are throwing tantrums you don't know what to do with during the day, and then you're up all night, and so you're exhausted, which only compounds all the stuff. And I was just sharing that. And then what my friend did is he started to offer advice. Has this ever happened to you? Like he started to offer solutions and he started trying to fix my situation and to fix me. And that's not at all what I wanted or desired at that moment. In fact, he wasn't sharing with me anything that was new that I hadn't heard before or read on the internet. What I wanted at the time was just for someone else to be able to say, yes, yeah, I've been there, I get that. It really is, I'm sorry. I guess I was like a pig. <laughs> And he was trying to throw me things that weren't nourishing to me. Do you see? They weren't good for me. They didn't offer me any sort of life. They were unhelpful. And then, just like when you condemn others, what happened is our relationship at that moment was shriveled. Because all of a sudden, he was here and I was here. Do you see that? We so often want to prove our own worth by offering these pearls of wisdom. Like, I can fix it. I am the completely wise one. 
Share with me your problems, and I'll offer the exact advice that you need. Take my pearls. Take my holy things, right? And we're elevating ourselves. We're, once again, putting ourselves in the position of God and then lowering someone else. You need me, and you need what I have to say to you. And it destroys relationship. It damages relationship. The good news is Jesus offers us here a better path. Because you may be thinking, and if you're thinking this, you're right. You may be thinking, Jesus can't completely do away with like moral judgment sort of conversations. Do you know what I mean? Like I need people in my life who when I'm walking off the path will call me out. And you do too. You need people in your life who will notice things in your life, will notice brokenness and sin and patterns, and who will call you out. I need people in my life who can offer pearls of wisdom and godly advice and who can give me correction when I need it. And you do too. And so there has to be space for that. And Jesus gives us here a better way that we can be in relationship where there's no damage but where there's instead only fruit and life. So look at verse five. This is the key. This is the money. Look at verse five. You hypocrite, you hypocrite who sees the speck in your brother's eye when you have a log in your own eye. First, take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. It all lies in this phrase, see clearly. Do you see it there? Do you see it clearly? See clearly in verse five. Because in verse three, Jesus says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not see the log that is in your own eye? And then in verse five, Jesus uses a phrase, you will be able to see clearly. So in this crazy, strange, hyperbole, comedic, Uh, analogy or metaphor that Jesus gives, this person moves from a place of seeing to a place of seeing clearly. And so we have to see like what, what happens? What's, what's the key and what does it, what does it mean for us? It's really easy to see, uh, but it's really hard to actually live out. It takes a lot of courage. So Jesus's metaphor is really simple, right? All it takes to be able to see clearly is what? To get the log out of your eye, right? If you acknowledge, you like, stop worrying about the speck in your brother's eye and acknowledge, hey, there's a log, there's a plank, there's a two by four protruding from my eye, acknowledge it and then work to have it removed, then you're at a place where you can see clearly and where you can be in relationship with someone and where you can help them like, hey, there's a speck in your own eye, let me help you remove that. So really easy to see, acknowledge that there's a log in your eye and then have it removed, but really hard and really painful to do because the metaphor is obvious. The metaphor is obvious. Like what Jesus is trying to get you to see is, hey, you have junk in your own life. You have all this stuff. You have all this baggage. You have sin in your own life. We, we said earlier in the confession and assurance I have sinned against you in thought and word and deed. 
by what I've done and even by the things I've left undone because I haven't loved you with my whole heart. I haven't loved my neighbors as myself. There's sin in your life. And the first painful step is for you to see that and acknowledge that, which is one reason we do a corporate confession every single week. You need to see that you're a person who is in need of mercy. Let me show you this. In the book of Matthew, the word mercy shows up several times. Let me just show you three places where the word mercy shows up. First in Matthew chapter 9. Listen, listen to these three stories. And again, like fill your imagination with these things. Don't just let them be words on a screen. But like really imagine these scenarios and these stories. In Matthew chapter 9, as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, crying out loud, have mercy on us, son of David. In Matthew chapter 15, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon, crying, have mercy on me, O son of David. Matthew chapter 17, a man came up to Jesus and kneeling before him, said to him, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. Think about these three instances, and if you can use your imagination, you can see the postures of people who recognize their need for mercy. Think about the postures of these people in these stories who recognize their need for mercy. Crying out loud, not the sort of tears that you shed at the end of the latest Pixar film, but crying like weeping on your knees, begging, have mercy on me, son of David. Kneeling, like bending my knee before this person who claims to be Lord and King. These are postures of people who have come to the end of themselves. These are the postures of people who have come to the end of themselves. And these, listen to this, these are the people who receive mercy from Jesus. You experience mercy when you come to the end of yourself and you surrender to Christ as your king. You experience mercy, you taste mercy when you come to the end of yourself and you surrender to Christ as king. And it's deeply painful. And it's really, really hard it's a lot easier, but in the big scheme of things, in the long run, in the end, it's ultimately a lot more tragic to ignore my own need for mercy, 
to ignore the log protruding out of my eye and instead to focus on the speck in someone else's eye, to minimize my own need, therefore elevate myself over someone else and notice the stuff in their life, condemn them. So here's my hope for us. My hope for us, and this is a scary thing to say, my hope for us is that we would truly be a people who know what it is to come to the end of ourselves so that we could surrender to our king and truly taste his mercy, experience his mercy. Because Jesus says in the Beatitudes, do you remember weeks and weeks ago, one of the Beatitudes is, blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. They shall receive mercy. It's this, this beautiful loop. People who have experienced mercy show mercy. And people who show mercy experience mercy. People who experience mercy show mercy. People who show mercy experience mercy. And that's the sort of person, Christ City Church, I want us, that's the sort of people that I want us to be. People who have come to the end of ourselves. People who can cry aloud to Jesus, our King, our Savior. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. People who can kneel before him, Lord, have mercy on me. And as we go about that hard work, we'll move from a place of kind of halfway blindly seeing to a place of seeing clearly. Where we live in relationship with one another, not you up here and others down here, but you together. Real relationship with them. I've tasted mercy and now I want you to taste mercy, like this irritating speck in your eye. I want to walk with you and help you have it removed. I want you to taste the freedom that I've tasted. Do you see that? Do you see that distinction? The world doesn't need, Memphis doesn't need more judgmental Christians. More Christians looking down their noses at others. The world doesn't need, Memphis doesn't need, Midtown doesn't need more Christians who are ignoring their own junk and only calling out the junk of others. What Memphis needs, what the world needs, is humble, kind, empathetic people who can truly be in relationship with people, people who have tasted the mercy of Jesus our King and now want to extend that mercy to others. That's the sort of non-judgmental presence that I want us to experience together. So let me close by praying that for us. Jesus, thank you for these challenging words that are so important and so relevant for us. And my prayer is that we would see how we have a tendency to live in these ways in relationships with others, condemning them, correcting them, elevating ourselves, diminishing them, not enjoying real relationship together with others. And God, my prayer is that you would bring us to the end of ourselves. And I know that'll be really hard and really painful. The 
pictures we have in Scripture, people crying out loud, people sobbing, people on their knees, Lord, have mercy. There's nowhere else I can turn. You're the king. Have mercy on me. And God, we know the good news that you meet us there, and you do have mercy. And then I pray that we would be a people who extend that mercy to others, that we would be a kind and gracious and humble and merciful people living a salt and light in the world. For your honor, Jesus, we pray. Amen.